0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. I'm joined today by Andy Miller to discuss Hunter Davies' 1968 authorised biography of the Beatles. Andy Miller is a reader, editor and author of books including The Year of Reading Dangerously, and the 33 and a 3rd volume on The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society and co-host of Backlisted, a podcast that gives new life to old books. Hunter Davies' book remains the only official volume ever published about the band. Andy and I discuss its creation, its impact and its legacy. Does this book still deserve to be on your Beatle bookshelves over 50 years later? Andy Miller, hello, and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. No, it's so it's such a nice thing for you
1: to ask me to come and um, come and do
0: this. My pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, oh, full kind of disclosure. One of the reasons that I begun this uh, little jaunt into the podcasting world, which has uh, thus far been almost entirely enjoyable, uh, was <laughs> the episode of uh, of backlisted, which uh, you recorded back in the. Summer of 2019 with Mark Helen and David Hepworth, where you discussed Beatles books with the usual uh, spring of uh, wit, intelligence, insight. Um, and I thought, "There's an idea." Um, so yeah, just
1: yeah. I, I you you said that you said that to me when you when you mentioned um, when you mentioned doing this. I was so we're so flattered. Me and Mitch, um, my co-host on Backlisted, uh, are so flattered that. I mean, Batlisted, or, and specifically that episode, would have inspired you to to do a podcast about Beatles books. I must say, if, no, if, if people listening to this haven't heard that episode of Batlisted, uh, apart from plugging it and saying it is available on all the, in all the usual places you get your podcasts, it was a live recording in front of about 500 people at um, the Port Elliott Festival down in Cornwall, which adds its own layer of nerves and adrenaline. But it was such it was such a laugh, the whole thing was such a laugh and we We always play audio clips on backlisted and we had clips of some girls outside uh, the Beatles Hotel in New York on their first visit to the states, which were really funny to hear played in the ether in front of five hundred people and we We had some the book I chose was joe orton 's script of up against it the 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 Beatles film that was aborted and, and didn't happen. And so we played about a minute of an adaptation out of that into the tent and it got massive laughs. It was really, th- no, it was really thrilling, yeah. right? Because I did think, I don't know if this is going to work or not. It was really funny. And Mark and David, you know, John, my co-host, was involved with the publication, was the publisher of the Beatles anthology when that was, uh, when was that like late 90s through Cassell? Yeah. You know, obviously David Hertworth and Mark Ellen experts and guests and so yeah the whole thing has a lovely road and looking back on it now it seems incredible it actually happened (laughs) i can't can't think i can't think we'll get an opportunity to do something like that again in for another year or two so anyway yeah uh
0: so moving on to the matter at hand we're we're here to talk about hunter davies 1968 authorized biography of the beatles a book which I would, I would hope that 99% of the people listening to this podcast have got sat on their shelf somewhere. If we could start in, in a, a semi obvious place, when and, and where was your first encounter with this book? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, I was really...
1: You asked me if I would like to talk about Hunter Davis's Beatles biography. It's not my favourite Beatles book, but I, I, but, I, but I do love it. Um, and so I didn't even quibble your choice. I thought, yes, I'd love to talk about that. There's loads of things to say about it, and I do have a personal attachment to it, actually. I read this book. uh, I'm holding up, listeners can't see it, but I'm holding up so Joe can see it, my 1982 uh, copy of The Beatles, the authorised biography with a tribute to John Lennon, it says on the front, Okay. published by Granada Paperbacks, and it cost pound ninety-five. <laughs> <laughs> and I first read this book in the, in the Easter holidays uh, in 1982. At the age of 13, we'd gone on a mini-break. Uh, me and my mum and dad had gone on a mini-break to a friend's holiday cottage in the Cotswolds. And I spent a lot of the, that Easter break... Age 13, reading this book on the top bunk of uh, the spare bedroom of this holiday cottage. (laughs) And I was probably at my most Beatles obsessed by that point. So I'd started buying, I'd started borrowing Beatles records from the library or buying Beatles records in the middle of 1980. And then, of course, I mean, I had been a fan uh, all the way through childhood. If you grew up in the 70s in Britain, it was very hard not to be a Beatles fan, really. Uh, but, you know, I started making that leap uh, about, about the age of 11 or 12 into actually making connections between different periods and different records. And, and John Lennon, of course, was killed. And let me tell you that. Um, accelerated everybody's interest in the Beatles and the availability of Beatles stuff, as it's as the t- as the front cover of that edition of Hunter's book suggests. Hmm. So I got a copy of Revolver for Christmas, 1980, and that was really the starting point for me. The proper the proper obsession, and um, I started subscribing to the Beatles Monthly, which at that point was reprinting editions from 67 68 i want to say that's what they did so so you had like whatever was going on with the beatles scene and then you you could you would keep it so i so so i was living this kind of weird parallel development of the beatles by reading the propaganda in in pravda of of how how much they love one another during the recording of the white album and what you know on into the But simultaneously, by the time we get to 1982, that's beginning to come to an end. But I'm also looking around thinking, I want to read a proper book now. Um, I think we're going to talk about what other books were around or what other books I'd read. But this, so this, the Hunter Davis book, is probably the first serious Beatles book that I read. And I was 13, and it is sort of, it is slightly grown up for a 13-year-old. And I didn't really have any sense that it was flawed I just absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. I probably read it 3 times that year. Mm. So much of the information in it was new to me and was not available elsewhere in 1982. Not widely available elsewhere. So I might talk about I might keep coming back to this subject about what it meant to a 13-year-old Beatles fan in 1982. That, that they, these aren't accidental things, you know, that my age and that period of how the Beatles were seen by posterity those are very significant i think um when absolutely. did you so when did you first read it
0: so i it was 1996 and uh, post anthology absolutely
1: that's a big spike isn't it the beatles spike in the mid
0: 90s yeah it, it's interesting speaking to some other authors actually of my age and a little bit older um that i have done yeah anthology was a big kind of changing point uh, and that, that kind of cemented my love of the Beatles. And my dad then, I can remember quite clearly, sat me down on as, on a Saturday afternoon and said, I, I want to give you this. Uh, and, and again, the listeners won't be able to see, but I have shown it on other podcast appearances. Uh, the <laughs> it's original...
1: A, it's an original hardback Heinemann edition from 1968 of The Beatles by Hunter Davis. Uh,
0: so the, the only version I ever had of this book was this one up until... Uh, probably about 10 years ago when I bought the most recent version, which is the 2008 edition. And much like you, yeah, it, it was, uh, even though, as, as we'll discuss, I'm sure there were a lot more Beatles books to choose from by 1996, not as many as there are now, but a lot more than there would have been in 1982. It still stood out to me because it, it seemed, it had such an energy about it um, that as a 12, 13-year-old, I, I kind of got uh, I got, a lot, I got a, quite a lot from um, the other book that I got around that time was Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head, which uh, mm-hmm. obviously you, you know you you, you discussed at the the aforementioned batlisted episode, which for a 12, 13 year old was a difficult read. Um, was it? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I found it quite difficult to. Yeah. I can um, imagine. Uh, whereas this, maybe in comparison to Ian McDonald's book, seemed quite seemed quite easy to read. So yeah, it it had a real I think vitality. I think really came across and a little little bit of of an innocence where I wasn't aware of all these, you know, I didn't know anything about different narratives of Beatle history. Um, It it was just a book about the Beatles. And I, I mean, it's slightly different in the mid nineties.
1: There were a lot more Beatles books by the mid nineties than there were in the early Hmm. eighties. Even though there were more Beatles books in the early eighties than there had been, in the 70s you know clearly Lennon's death was a sort of gold rush actually for it's around that time that lots of people from the Beatles various inner or outer circles start publishing their their memoirs and there's books of interviews and there's all sorts of cash-ins but you know the other book that I will come back to Hunter in a second but the other book that I read and loved read repeatedly the Beatles, an illustrated record by Roy Carr and Tony Tyler. And I hadn't appreciated uh, until I was preparing for, for this, Joe. This was a massive bestseller. Did you know that? Not at all. In the 70s, this sold about a quarter of a million copies. The wow. Beatles, the illustrated record. And for anyone who doesn't know it, it's, it's, it is the thing it says it is. It's a big square book of pictures of Beatles LP covers with a kind of critical assessment. But even that book, a book like that, was incredibly valuable in, in the 70s and 80s because it was a place where all the information was. And to some extent, that's really true of Hunter's book. Even in the early 80s, there weren't loads of places where you could find out just the basic facts, however partial Hunter mm. might have been. Actually, I thought one of the things about it, Joe, rereading it was, mm. although there are gaps, which we'll talk about, Certainly in terms of going out and getting the facts as a newspaper reporter, which is what he was in the mid-1960s, a lot of other Beatles books are massively expanded versions of, of his basic mapping of the story. And what I thought was interesting reading it again was how the beats of the story which hunter to let's be fair is the first person to write them down in this way. Pretty much, yeah. it's still the template by which most other people tell that story. Right? Is that fair? Do you think?
0: I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah, I think it's um, it's probably the most influential of of Beatles books that you can think of. Really, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about um things like Shout and, uh, and and other books like that that um, that came later but really this as you say this set the yeah the template out for a vast majority of biographies um, you know even you know you were talking about cash a little bit around the early 80s I spoke to the author Chris Power that I know you had on um batlisted about oh, Revo- yeah. uh, about revolution in the head and he was talking and I asked him a similar question to you about early beatles books and the love you make by peter brown uh, which came out in 83 which was again a massive selling beatles book you know books like like his really do use the template still of hunter's book even though that's a personal you know I uh, I just like
1: to read can i just read like a paragraph here and and say why i chose it because i think it illustrates exactly what we're talking about right i want you to i want you to imagine that few people knew this information in 1968 mm. this is the beginning of chapter two and the chapter is called john and the Quarrymen. men so he starts the book by he gives basically two chapters to each beetle in childhood and growing up so we haven't yet met mccartney or harrison or or starr so he's, he's, he's expanding on what he's written about Lennon's childhood. The chapter starts. Quarry Bank High School, when John started there in 1952, was a small suburban grammar school in Allerton, Liverpool, not far from Mimi's house. It was founded in 1922. It's not as big or as well-known as the Liverpool Institute in the middle of the city, but it still has a good reputation. Two of its old boys went on to become Labour government ministers, Peter Shaw and William Rogers. Mimi was pleased that he was at a local grammar school rather than one in the city. She thought she would be able to keep an eye on him. Pete and went with him to quarry, but his other close friend, Ivan Vaughan, went instead to the Institute, much to his relief. He was the only academic one of John's gang. He knew that going with John would make all schoolwork impossible, but he was still accepted as a member of John's gang after school hours. Ivan began to bring boys back from his school to join John's gang. The first one I brought was Len Gary, but I didn't bring many. I was always very selective about people I brought to meet John. Now, to us, in 2021, that sounds prosaic. I can tell you, from a point of view of writing, there's a lot of work gone into that to be sufficiently confident with the facts to present it in that kind of a chatty way and it's actually packed with information that uh, judgments about types of school Mm. areas founding social detail personal detail hunter davis was a very successful journalist because he was very good at journalism and actually one of the ways in which this book still excels is its journalistic method and we'll talk about, I think, the different ways that the journalistic method is expressed in the book. But mm. there's a good example of it, right? Mm. That's clean, fact-based, research-based storytelling. Um, and I thought that still works really,
0: really well. I agree. You know, think about those names there that you mentioned, Len Gary, Pete Shotton—names now that we all know. I imagine that in 1968, nobody would have known yeah. those names.
1: And, and Hunter's editorial decision to, put, to push those forward hmm. as sources and eyewitness accounts, we take that for granted. And what I found so interesting was I was constantly asking myself, yeah, that guy, and then thinking, yeah, but you're the first person to have identified that guy as somebody worth talking to or listening to.
0: Yeah,
1: And uh, so I think Hunter deserves a lot of credit for that, for a start right we, we yeah. stylistically we can go on and talk about that but but in terms of doing also i'd like to make the point this book was published in september or october 1968 depending on where you were it was commissioned and the contract was signed in january 1967 and such is the turnaround time on a book basically things probably haven't changed but approximately nine months to a year he will have had to turn in the manuscript for it in early 1968 so that is a very tight schedule to go even with the cooperation of your sources to go off and do all that legwork and write a a 400 page book by, I think the afterword he signs off at the end of the book is like March sixty eight or May sixty eight. Actually there are two different ones. Right. Depending on who he was updating for. But you know what I mean? I mean yeah. he basically had to write the book in a year. Yeah. And that is that's no mean feat. And and I never get the sense that it's a piece of hack work, right?
0: No, I agree. I agree. Uh, just to, uh, a line or two on 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 Hunter and the, I suppose, the creation of the book. Um, I, d- I looked into a little bit of the, the history of it. Um, so Hunter was a relatively, I think, well-known journalist, as you say, at the time.
1: Hunter was had some Sunday Times column. Yeah, you're right, which meant that he 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 was he's kind of a he inherited it from somebody else. Right. Okay. And you're right. It gives him a, a, a basically a key to personalities who were considered newsworthy that he might be able to write about for the Sunday times.
0: Uh, And I I think he, so I think that that was his, I think think his name must've been relatively well known around the time. And from what I can gather, from what I've looked into, he initially approached Paul McCartney uh, to provide some music for here we go around the mulberry bush, which was Mm -hmm. uh, a, a novel that he'd written that was made into a film uh that that year n- 1967 um which i think traffic did the music for in the end I don't, I don't, paul obviously wasn't interested in uh in in writing music for that film he just it's written... very.
1: it's a very it's the spencer davis crew it's a brilliant soundtrack here we it's go davis crew. it's a yeah. much better soundtrack than it is a film <laughs> much as i love that film yeah nevertheless yeah um but yeah but the thing about hunter is he's kind of the coming man right this is always hard to use this word without it seeing pejorative, but he's a hustler. He's mm. obviously, a, he's a, you know, he's an ambitious young journalist. He's written a, a, a sexy novel that has been optioned for a film. He's not, you know, he's prepared. He's got enough, um, chutzpah to approach Paul McCartney and say, do you want to do the music? I mean, he's, he's right. And he, so he sees there as an opportunity. Why isn't there a significant Beatles book? Mm. And so he approaches McCartney and McCartney, Goes to Epstein and Epstein says, "Yes, I suppose we ought to have a book." Basically, is that it, it seems to me is how that works, right?
0: Yeah. Were you were you surprised that? I mean, like you say, significant book. We'd had the Michael Brown book, uh, which had come out, Love Me Do, um, mm. and there was a, a, a couple of paperbacks I think that, that had kind of come out. Billy Shepard had written what I think, called The True Story of the Beatles, which was. Uh, in 64, which was just a kind of a, like say a hack job. Um, w- were you surprised that this hadn't someone hadn't thought with this before 1967?
1: Honestly, no. Okay. It, um, and I say that with a, as a, a like a, I worked for as a book editor for uh, and for, for several years and on the, on the publishing side of things. And there's a really funny story that Hunter tells about uh, somebody from one of the publishers when he was pitching it around he was surprised that more people weren't interested and they said to him, well, books about pop music don't sell. Uh, I mean, not even, we did Cliff Richards autobiography last year. That didn't sell. <laughs> now to us, that seems absurd, right? Because mm. like that, you would compare those, those things, but I can totally see that publishers saw the Beatles. Everybody saw the Beatles, even when he was writing this as a fad and a fad that would become, you know, wouldn't last that's how the beatles that's how the beatles saw it Mm. and it might be one of the the lucky things about the hunter davis book is he happens to be writing it while they're making sergeant pepper because it's the release of sergeant pepper that legitimizes the beatles as pop artists in a way that they hadn't been seen up to that point Mm. i mean we'll talk about this later as well I, i i went and dug out a few of the contemporary reviews in the broadsheet newspapers of hunter davis's book from 1968 what is so fascinating about them generally is that they're sort of a mixture of baffled, patronizing, infuriated that the book exists at all. Right. Because the Beatles are, they can't, they're so unwilling to give the Beatles respect, actually. Mm. Even in, ni- in late 1968, this thing has happened so fast and without their permission, to use the famous phrase, that they're just, they're just infuriated by it. So I think it's to Hunter Davis's great credit that actually reading the tone of the book now, I thought, Joe, it read like what it is, a piece of smart journalism by a Sunday Times journalist in 1967 and 68. And remember, the Sunday Times in the 60s, the Sunday Times colour supplement in particular, was quite an ambitious undertaking and had a kind of new journalism feel to it within the framework of the British press, Hmm. nevertheless. It was interested in ideas and in new things that were happening and in writing about them with intelligence. And the thing that comes through from the authorised biography is there's a constant, tension would be wrong, but things that seem to us to be fairly saccharine, I doubt were saccharine at the time, the mere fact that the 400-page book had been published on the Beatles won, was in and of itself a gesture, an insolent gesture. I wonder what you felt about how Lennon famously, I mean, because he slagged everything off, yeah you know, said it had been and and sanitised. I think what's interesting when you read it now is it, it doesn't come over like that at all. I think it's quite shocking for a book published in the... 1960s. Is that how you found it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that when I reread it, one of the things that really stood out for me was the description of their early lives. Uh, As you said, when you read an excerpt there, they chapter one, John, and then chapter three, Paul, etc., etc. And I thought they were quite honest and quite. um, open really Uh, you know there's there's conversations that paul has where they talk about they talk about someone like stuart sutcliffe and i I don't know how many people knew who stuart sutcliffe was in 1968 so that that's a conversation that you can have anyway but you know paul paul says i didn't like him i didn't get on with him um when you Mm. compare when you compare that to going back to the mid-90s the anthology interviews uh, and obviously, Paul was asked about Stuart Sutcliffe then, and he says he says something like, um, "I wasn't very sensible, but hey, who's sensible when I'm when they're seventeen? Certainly not me." Which is uh, another thirty years or so of, of media savviness from 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 Paul there a little bit, and a, a reflection of getting older. But I think if you compare some of the comments that they make about their early lives, about their relationship with their. Uh, each other, even and their parents, etc. I-, I think it's quite unvarnished compared to some there's, of the stuff that they came out later. A,
1: there's a bit where McCartney says reveals that he lost his virginity at the age of 15 to his babysitter, which let me tell you, to a to a 13 year old in 1982, with an eye popping detail. Uh, The fact that uh, that when I read the book again, I was waiting for that bit to come up because that sort of I can remember that lodging in my brain at the time, Mm -hmm. and that was not a thing that pop stars in 1968 talked about. The the other thing that struck me, rereading it, which in a way didn't in 1982 didn't mean the same thing, but you know he's interviewing Lennon in Weybridge or. Mm. George in Isha, invaluable, you know, first-hand reportage, which we'll, we'll come on to. But also how young the Beatles are, right? How, how old is George when he's being interviewed for this? He's like, he's like 24 or something.
0: 24, 25,
1: yeah. They're so young. And, mm. and, and all these expectations that are, are being put on them. And again, I think Hunter Davis's restraint... Really does him credit. You know, a lot of readers of the Sunday Times would expect him to be passing judgment on these kids who were a fad, still considered a fad. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. I found her like a little... There's a, the Sunday Times in their paperback roundup in 1969. They give this book one line. Okay. But actually, I thought I thought this is a really brilliant encapsulation of what's good about this book now in 2021. The Sunday Times said of Hunter Davis, the Beatles fascinate him as a phenomenon and as people, like it or hate it, <laughs> a highly professional study. Now that that seems that's, I think that's intended as a kind of damning it with faint praise, but actually. I think those are all the elements that endear it to us now, Mm. why it's worth reading now. They do fascinate him. He is journalistically fascinated in the phenomenon, but he clearly does like them and likes the milieu from which they come. The interviews with the parents are are gold dust in terms of placing their their early days. But also, like it or hate it, a highly professional study. It is professional in the best way. He's turned (laughs) round. This goes back to what I was saying. Mm. It's a fine piece of journalism to have written in a year Mm. without it feeling like a piece of hack work, without it feeling like, you know... What did you think was missing? What struck you as what was missing?
0: I think it's difficult for that question because I'm coming at it with my... Having read many hundreds of, of Beatles books... So when I reread it in, in preparation for this, I, I suppose an obvious thing would be to say detail. We are, after all, living in a post-Mark Lewisham world. Um, when we, mm-hmm. you know, you, If you want to, you can buy the expanded version of TuneIn and you can, you, can find, you can find interviews with the bus driver that drove John to Scotland while he played harmonica on the bus hunter obviously you know it's a it's light years difference not necessarily superior just a different approach okay reading it now from 2021 there's a combination of excitement when as you say about the parents his interview with louise harrison
1: yeah louise harrison absolutely yeah
0: louise harrison died in 1970 okay so no other Beatles book would ever have that first-hand access to Louise Harrison. Jim McCartney died in 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, again, um, John's dad died in 1976, and, another Leonard McCartney uh, strangeness thing. So, you know, people like that, they're gone. You know, there's not a lot out there a, about them. So I kind of, I found myself reading, you know, the, the, the parents' uh, being interviewed and I was like I'm kind of thinking of other things that I love to ask you know because come at it from the 2020 my 2021 head you kind of drink in all the words that they say about the you know the respective Beatles Uh, but then I I did feel there was stuff that why didn't he ask that why why didn't he go there I mean you are you mentioned Mark
1: Lewison's tune in I mean, there is no shorter version as far as I'm concerned. There is only the expanded okay. version, right? Okay. <laughs> it's an amazing... It's a, an amazing enterprise. Totally worth reading, of course. Very important piece of work. But I go back to what I said earlier. What I was struck by going back to read Hunter Davis is, in some respects, I mean, and Lewison has clarified all sorts of important factual matters... And yet, nevertheless, Mark's version is, can be read as a massively augmented version of the same beats hit by Hunter yeah. in a year in 1967. And I think that reflects incredibly well on Hunter Davis, mm. that when I asked you what what did you think was missing, the thing that struck me from a not even from a 2021 perspective, maybe from how we've talked about the Beatles for much longer, mm. certainly probably since the 70s, Since maybe even since the illustrated record I mentioned before. There's so little on the albums and actually on the records. Yeah. There's a lot of eyewitness stuff, which we'll talk about about the making of a specific record, but... There's, you know, there's so much, there's a lot more given over to Brian Epstein's um, domestic arrangements than there is to Rubber Soul, which yeah. isn't mentioned once. And I think that, again, we shouldn't fault Hunter Davis for that. We should say, what does that tell us about how those, how that aspect of the Beatles' cult creative production was viewed in 1967 and 68? Answer. No one cared. No one cared. Even the Beatles didn't care much. You remember on the anthology, George says, when they, when they get to Rubber Soul and Revolver, he says, I, I get these two mixed up. I can't really remember which is which.
0: It's very so George. The,
1: the emphasis that we as fans and that history puts and the significance that we impose on these markers, on then they made this album and it was a leap forward from this album, that is a post hoc interpretation of events that no one at the time or very few people at the time would have placed that interpretation on and certainly judging from how the Beatles themselves view it how Hunter Davis views it in this book they didn't care they no. didn't care they might have cared about individual tracks or moments that struck them as, as leaps forward but there's nothing about Revolver in this book did you notice yeah yeah there's I- no- <laughs> the greatest a record often seen as the greatest album ever made I guess one mention Mm. in passing.
0: Mm.
1: It's not like Hunter stops the narrative and goes, well, when they stopped touring, the first thing they did was make this incredible album and then spend pages telling you about there's nothing. (laughs) There's nothing. Right. Um, I found that very refreshing. I know everything I want to know about revolver. Surely. Right. I don't need Hunter to reiterate it for me in, in his, in his round. There's a brilliant bit where he goes, where he says something like, And then two years passed. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, Yeah, The next two years were, and and the two years are are talking about touring. And touring is a thing that clearly, at the point he wrote the book, the Beatles were sick of, and it was very significant that they stopped doing it. Hmm. But compare it with the anthology. I can remember watching the anthology on the telly in 95. The amount of, coverage given over to their awful trip to the philippines and i can remember thinking i didn't know anything about this this they seem really they've all got loads to say about this and then i went back to hunter's book now it's barely mentioned literally it said and they had an unsuccessful trip to the philippines that's Mm -hmm. it it falls under those sort that kind of and then two years passed Nobody thought it was worth talking about because it was, you know, it was, it was late Beatlemania, right? And he's always saying Beatlemania is over now. The records that they made and the touring that they did and all these things that we've massively unpacked as fans and as commentators in 1967, 68, they don't really mean anything. They're kind of like part of the first bit. They go alongside She Loves You and the Royal Variety performance.
0: Do you think an element of that is reflective of the times in the sense that, and almost from a commercial aspect, because the two things that people didn't know about the Beatles or that were curious about the Beatles maybe in 1968 was what were they like before they were famous and what are they like now? Because they've just lived through the fans, bought, like my dad, for instance... Mm. Lived, lived through those three or four years they had their copy of, of revolver so a bit like we knew everything that we need to know about revolver so did they because they'd listened to it they bought it on yeah. the day it came out yeah yeah, they, yeah yeah. they're interested in what john was like as a kid what ringo was like as uh, you know as a teenager or whatever and they're interested in what the Beatles are doing now because it's news and Hunter's trying to sell a book. And the publisher, as you know, they're trying to sell books here. Uh, because what, if- what, Hunter Davis is a, is
1: a good, reputable journalist for a good, reputable publication, hmm. telling a story uh, that, as you said, you're totally right, Joe, telling a story with an eye on what people want to know. And we're going to come back to this because I find this totally fascinating. And we, how we reverse engineer what we think people wanted from a book about the Beatles in 19 what they wanted from a book about the Beatles in 1968 is not what they wanted from a book about the Beatles in 1975 or 1981 or 1995 or 2020 people always say about science fiction it may be set in the future but it always tells you more about the year in which it was written and I think you can we've we've been, we've we've got like 50 years, 60 years of Beatles books. Mm. What they tell us about how people felt about the Beatles and where publishers perceived the market was for such a book is incredibly illuminating.
0: Talking about the music, um, if I could just move on now to the part where, where Hunter does talk about music. In fact, it's called The Beatles and Their Music, I think, in in the version I've got anyway. And it, it's, it's the real, I suppose it's the That's gold...
1: section three?
0: Yes. Yeah. So it, it's the kind of gold dust in the sense that it's...
1: Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. Please this do. This is fascinating. Please do. So in this 1981 edition, the main body of the text, as far as I can work out, is lifted without doing any editing work from the 68 edition you've got. Mm. And one of the things we, we both noticed is how many extra bits and pieces have been added to this book over the years. At least five maybe six so in the 81 edition and you might be able to confirm this in the 68 edition the book is divided into three parts and they are called part one liverpool we've talked about that part two london and the world we have talked about that because it's the bit hunter is least interested in because the beatles are least interested in because maybe the readership are the least interested in it and then part three the bit you want to talk about now is called today
0: so that's exactly the same as the 68 edition Um, right uh, so yeah, there's no change there. Let's uh let's get really geeky now. I've I've this is the, I'm holding also in my hands now the two thousand and eight edition, which to my knowledge is the most recent version. And the difference here is, interestingly, part three is called nineteen sixty eight. Of course.
1: But so, that's fine, isn't it? By in two thousand and nine, you know that. So it's just become a it become, it's it's changed, hasn't it? This context changes it. It, bec- it it ceases to be a snapshot of the moment, and it becomes the snapshot of a moment. Uh, and you talked about the Beatles and their music in part three today.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, it's uh, really hard to read that bit without getting goosebumps. I think. Oh, like, I could, I
0: I couldn't. I mean, I, could, I couldn't agree more. It's the gold dust part of the book because. Mm-hmm. Even though you've had descriptions of recording sessions in things like Jeff Emmerich's book, you've had people that have written about where they've sat in on a writing session, people like Tony Barrow, Tony Bramwell, you know, these kind of insiders, even the Peter Brown book. There's an element of notes about songwriting in all of those books. Hunter's is the only one that ever sat there and wrote it all down. Because when mm-hmm. Tony Bramwell or Tony Barrow, whoever, was sat in that room with John and Paul that afternoon somewhere, they didn't know there was going to be a book coming. They were just there. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Hunter knows there's going to be a book coming. So this really is, is the most accurate description. And really the only description that we've got kind of firsthand of Beatles recording sessions. Even George Martin's book, All You Need Is Ears, comes out in 1979. Um, so, you know, that even there, there's a, a, a fair whack of time. And that's not just about the Beatles, obviously. But the thing I noticed from reading this, and obviously this is the, the writing of, of songs that would become Sergeant Pepper, is the kind of atmosphere that, that comes across, I thought, was of a slightly laid back variety of, of John and Paul uh, writing Getting Better, which is a, you know, a fairly energetic. Vibrant song, and it's almost like they're. And I'll 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 read a bit shortly. Um, and you know they they're kind of knocking on the door of each other's head, trying to get a song to fall out. Um, obviously their songwriting has changed from the kind of eyeball to eyeball in a hotel room. She loves you stuff, but we're always told that the Beatles work at a breakneck speed and that they have to knock out a song by six months because there's another album that needs to come out for Christmas. I, I, I got a real sense from this that it, there's a kind of haphazardness going on um maybe that's reflective of the times because it's 1967 but you know i i, I i'll read a little bit from uh, from the book here yeah, um so uh, this is this is hunter talking about this is them writing a little help from my friends in fact um they both stopped all the shouting and larking around and as suddenly as they begun it they went back very quietly to the song they were supposed to be working on What do you see when you turn out the light, sang John, trying slightly new words to their existing line, missing out, afraid. Then he followed it with another line. I can't tell you, but I know it's mine. Paul said, yes, that would do. He wrote down the finished four lines on a sheet of exercise paper propped up in front of him on his piano. They now had one whole verse as well as the chorus. Paul got up and wandered around the room. John moved to the piano. Mm. How about a piece of amazing cake from Basingstoke? Said Paul. <laughs> Taking down a piece of rock hard cake from the shelf. It will do for a trifle, said John. Paul made a face. I mean, as a description of, of a writing session, it's not quite. I don't imagine Rogers and Hammerstein kind of, you know, wrote songs like that. You know, I, I think that's, a, that's such a fascinating window in, into them.
1: One of the things are, I've got another little bit here, Joe which I can remember reading in 1982. Again, a bit I can remember reading in 1982. that amazing? 40 years ago, I can remember reading it. From the same section, Paul came back and played his songs with Jane, singing a la-la-la accompaniment to all the friends who dropped in, especially when they were going to launch into some saga of the things which had gone wrong when he'd been away. Maca says, no, don't tell me, listen to this instead. Then he began a song about Rocky Raccoon, checking into his room and finding only a Gideon Bible. At the rhyming of Bible with rival, he gave an apologetic grimace. He'd also written a song about junk in a junkyard. He paused in the middle of singing a line about broken hearted Jubilee mug to say, wasn't Jubilee a lovely word to sing? Then he had a song about a girl sitting in the distance with a red umbrella. It had few words, but lots of la las. Now,
0: <laughs> it's a lot there.
1: So, so, first of all, Rocky Raccoon. So, we know from this that he must have, that Rocky Raccoon, the Hunters, presumably Spring 68. We recognize Rocky Raccoon and anybody who'd, who'd bought this book around the time the White Album was released, because they come out at similar times, presumably Christmas 1968 releases. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're going to go, oh, yeah, Rocky Raccoon, that's on this new album. Junk, they won't know what that is. And as a kid in 1982, I can remember thinking, Junk in I wonder what that is. Right. You know, it wasn't not for many years, funnily enough, do I then, when I buy a copy of McCartney, I go, oh, yeah, there's, there's this song about junk in a junkyard. I hope somebody listening to this will be able to tell me what the song about a girl sitting in the distance with a red umbrella is because... Me too. ...wanted me for 40 years. What is it? We don't know.
0: I can't think of anything.
1: But I, I, I agree with you completely. Going back to it and reading that section is, if anything, actually, it's more magical now than it was when I first read it. It also gave me a sense that I think the book does really, really well of capturing the the moment of what, what it was like to be in or around the Beatles in the wake of the death of Brian Epstein, which is when the book is researched. So, you know, through 1967 into early 1968. You know, Lennon seems quite chippy and McCartney seems quite mccartney-ish and george seems quite sanctimonious but at the same time you get the sense that they've only got one another did that did you feel that that the sense that being in the beatles was nobody knew what being in the beatles was in this period but there were all these people who wanted to exploit them or get something from them or yeah. or use them And they could only really communicate with one another or trust one another. I think that comes over really loud and clear in the Hunter Davis
0: book. I couldn't agree more, actually, because another passage that I was was going to read, actually, and that we can talk about a little bit now, is that Mm. the the chapter titles are just John, Paul, George, and Ringo, much like the titles at the beginning of the book, which is a nice kind of circular um, thing there, is when he talks to John. And John, don't forget, within a year of this, maybe 18 months of this conversation happening. We're told anyway, isn't desperately interested in being in the Beatles maybe, but this is what mm. he talks. This is what he says when so Hunter's talking to S- Cynthia as well uh, at the same time, because oh. both their voices are heard. Is um, this
1: the, I think it's going to be, this is really,
0: this is really, Oh, it's now, really grim. This. I think, well, uh, yeah, well, this is, this is a bit that I thought kind of came across. Um, Sin says, what I would like is a holiday on our own, without the Beatles, yeah, just, yeah, just, just yeah. John, Julian and me. You what, said John, smiling, not even with our Beatle buddies. <laughs> y- yes, John, don't you remember, we were talking about it last week. John then says, what did we say, which I think is quite, quite revealing on its own. <laughs> we said the three of us could go off somewhere, not with your buddies. And then John says, but it's nice to have your mates around. I mean, I think that's that's almost heartbreaking in a way that uh, uh, that, that tells us everything you need to know about John Lennon in late '67. We know that he's in a bit of a funk, yeah. Maybe at that point, you, you know, the photo. People talk about the photos of 1980. He looks bad. If you look at the photos of John, the Sergeant Pepper announcement at Brian's house uh, in in middle of '67, I think he looks quite drawn. He looks quite, mm. you know, quite unwell. Mm, mm. Um, I think that you know, it's nice to have your mates around. They so rarely, I think, socialise with other people at, at, one at this of the, point. One of,
1: it's one of the things that we do, we definitely owe a massive debt to Mark and for. I think my favourite thing about uh, Tune In is basically, he says, the idea we have of the Beatles as a group really came and went depending on what basis or drummer or what they were called or whatever, and they went through periods of just not bothering what really matters is the relationship between John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison. Hmm. If you want to understand what the Beatles are, they're not even a group at first and foremost. It's a, a competitive friendship between those three individuals. Okay. With Lennon as the older one and the leader, and McCartney and Harrison vying with one another to be in with John. And I thought, what was what I think Mark, Mark Lewison's interpretation is so solid that actually rereading Hunter Davis, I saw it through that l- light. And the bit you've just talked about is exactly that. Hmm. And if you go forward into the period where, but we talked about Let It Be. What is the story of Let It Be? Well, I mean, whatever version we get to see when Peter Jackson makes his film, What is the version of what did people want from a Beatles film in 1970? This goes back to what I'm talking about. What do people want from a thing in a a given era? Well, the story of Let It Be, which seems to me probably based entirely on the truth, is the Beatles squabbling because their leader, John Lennon, doesn't want to be there. And yet when they go up to the rooftop, you watch McCartney and Harrison. They're so happy. And why are they happy? Because John Lennon turned up. Because that John Lennon turned up. Hmm. They look at him all the time. He's the leader of the group. And it's not that he's the leader of the group. He is the center of, that, of the, the relationship of those three people. You know, they didn't have anyone else. And, and in, in that sense, you can see why Yoko arriving is such a significant thing for Lennon. He gets to be himself. He, he's been in this. He gets to be himself. I mean, this sounds like a cliche as I say it, but actually, funnily enough, Hunter's book sort of it helps you understand why. He gets to be himself. She's prepared to let him be an individual, not a member of this friendship group, this weird com- competitive, combative group that formed at school. Mm. He, she gets to say, no, you can be John Lennon albeit John Lennon and Yoko Ono. We, but you know what I mean? It's like substituting one weird relationship for another codependent relationship. But still, Hunter gets to write about that. You know, you didn't read the bit where Cynthia and John talk about we never would have got married if Cynthia hadn't got pregnant, but mm. it's cool. You think, whoa, <laughs> I mean, hmm, that's not going to, that's that, that, this might not last, guys. I found that quite hard reading, actually. I'd also like to say something about the individual relationship that I think Hunter Davis, the writer, manages to forge with each member of the Beatles, because that's really, right. that really informs our response to the book now. Or, or, or let's put it another way the relationship that each beetle can be bothered to form with their biographer. So we know from the updates that the Beatles with, with whom he was closest was probably McCartney. And I think he's very fair to McCartney and McCartney comes out of the book pretty well. Ringo, I don't think he's got a lot to say about Ringo. I think Ringo's happy not to have a lot said about him. I, 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 you know, that doesn't need to be a terribly complex relationship. Lennon, I, don't think he, I think he's scared of Lennon like so many people were. And Harrison, he doesn't get at all. And I I feel quite sorry for George because I feel like Hunter probably caught George at his most spiritually earnest and least tolerant. And I think that's a brilliant example of George not really, I don't want to say doing himself any favors because that's not what I mean. I think George is a fairly, George never wants to play the game. Ringo does, McCartney does, Lennon does while pretending he doesn't, George mm. doesn't, and, and you can see that in the anthology. I watched the anthology with my son again last year because he's a Beatles fan. He was very interested in watching it. And still, the most interesting thing, relationship in the Beatles is that is who wants ownership of what elements of the Beatles myth. There's no bigger Beatles fan than Paul McCartney. But that's not to say that George isn't a Beatles fan, but George is more happier just operating on the periphery of it. And what I think the difference is, is George in the mid-90s can do it with a sense of humour. George in Hunter's book, the humour doesn't come over, either because he's 24 and, and he's far more earnest about it, or Hunter couldn't see it in him. I, I don't know what you feel about that. I feel George, gets the, I feel George is the one who, who comes out Least well from this version of the Beatles.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I, mean, I, think, I think George as a human being is maybe the hardest to capture in any book. Um, you know, there was a book that came out last year, uh, a collection of interviews collated by the writer Ashley Kahn, who's best known mm. for, for a lot of jazz work. And I was lucky enough to have Ashley on, on the program. I mean, interviews from 1962 up until the last interview he ever gave, which was a web chat in 2000. Uh, and each interview there's a a whole world of difference almost year by year in the kind of person that George is Um, which I don't think you get as as obvious with with the other Beatles certainly not with Paul uh, and, and John I think took on a persona be it the you know the Rebel for Love of the late sixties, and then the political John and House Husband John. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to kind of chapter, but with George, you know, there, there was some. There's, it's such a complicated man.
1: I, you know? I my favorite bit of uh, I've, I love um in the Beatles anthology. There's uh, there's some bits that I really love. I love the bit where, like I say, I think that's the energy, right? Who who in in, in like with Let It Be in John Lennon's absence. Though so those everyone else gets to slightly needle one another. So there's a bit where McCartney says, you know, Bob Dylan was our idol, and it cuts to George and it's all in the cutting. They've done it deliberately. It cuts to George going, Well, we you know, we liked him. He wasn't our idol. We liked him, right? That's his tiny little edit. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit where where George talks about you know, the, what, the, Beetle, the Beatles giving their nervous systems, which is a brilliant phrase. Great line. Right, a great, great line. But he also, I think it's around that time that he says, you know, all, we, all that swinging and we sold all that corduroy. Now, that in itself is a funny line, but the corduroy line is a reference to a speech Edward Heath gave in the 60s saying the Beatles got their MBEs because of their contribution to the corduroy industry, ha, ha, ha. So that's George. It's not, George is not someone who isn't engaged with aspects of the Beatles myth, quite the reverse. Hmm. He just doesn't want to be defined by it. Whereas I think the difference with McCartney is McCartney, as George would always say of him, when it suits him, he's very happy to be defined by the Beatles myth, not even what happened. But the Beatles myth, going back to Hunter, I think you can see that difference in approach in the book. You know, McCartney, as you said, partly because of Paul that the book happens. And not only that, it happens in a specific era, doesn't it? It happens in a kind of Epstein withdrawing. We need to be doing a, a an album and a tv special and we ought to have a book and it's thanks to me paul mccartney that these things are happening so i think you can i think with the benefit of hindsight you can see those processes at work in the book but again it sounds like i'm being critical of mccartney or hunter davis or i'm really really not i just Mm. think i think it was so hard for to understand what the Beatles represented in the era that he's writing it. And, you, and actually Hunter is very faithful to putting that on the page and going, well, what is this thing now? They don't tour. They hate touring. They've made Sgt Pepper, which everybody says is the great, greatest album ever made. Brackets, not that I'm going to mention any of their other albums before we get there. So what is this thing pre-Apple? The Apple is just beginning to, beginning to happen.
0: It's a very curious time, actually, to be writing. A, I mean, we we talk a bit about biography as a whole, but it's looking back. It's a very curious time to be writing the biography of the Beatles because it's kind of it's before the end starts, but it's after the beginning and it's after the middle. It's kind of in this strange, uh, odd placement. In obviously, we know it now as the Beatles calendar, and then it was Revolver, and then it was Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour. You know. At the time, it was just stuff happening, obviously. But it, looking back now, it's a slightly strange time for the book to appear. Um, and, but obviously, that's I, just you know, the nature of it.
1: I think that the significant thing that struck me was that idea we've already talked about. It's post-Beatlemania. Hunter Davis is explicit to say, that was Beatlemania and that's over. Mm. And because that's over, now perhaps we can appraise what they're cultural significance really is here in 1967 (laughs) before loads of stuff has happened (laughs) that becomes incredibly important but but that's it really you know that's really why touring gets and then they toured for two years because because hunter davis needs to make the case that the people he's writing about are more worthy of attention than what the, many of the readers will think they are because of the thing they think of as Beatlemania, a fad. Mm. That's, that's, the, that's the message I get from reading the book now and looking at the reviews from, at the time. I've got to say, the reviews at the time, I mean, I could read a few of them out, but I'm not going to just because it'd take us too long. Okay. But there's a general point I'd like to make about them. I looked at reviews from the listener From the Times, from the Sunday Times, from the Observer, I tweeted a link to the Observer review, which is the most snobby, clueless. It's a really terrible review of the book and of the Beatles, but a kind of left wing intelligentsia in 1968. If you want to see it, look on my Twitter feed. If you want to see what those people felt about the Beatles, in the era that the book was published, it's very illuminating. But there's a review in The Listener by the poet Adrian Mitchell. I mean, it's a lousy review in as much as it consists of a quick bit of stuff and then a poem and then how he feels about the Beatles. I mean, it. it, But but this is what the poet Adrian Mitchell said in October 1968 about this book. Already, this official biography is a long trudge compared with Michael Braun's sprinting "Love Me Do," yet notwithstanding, perhaps there's some fair scenery along the way, especially when Mr. Davis shows how various songs were fitted together. That's it, and that's,
0: <laughs> and that's it, that's really. It.
1: And the rest of the review is a poem, and then a thing about the Beatles should make a record called Enoch to stand up to Enoch Powell. I mean, that's not that's not to say you know, that's not to say that's wrong, but. The, the reviews are not good. I've got another one here. By, from. This is by Irving Wardle in the Sunday Times. And let me add to this that Hunter Davis's book was serialized for four weeks in the Times prior to publication, which indeed is probably how they made a lot of the money back. You know, when a publisher buys a book by a celebrity or a politician, they, they, there are two ways they can make their money back, make the advance back selling copies of the book in bookshops and the money they get from a newspaper for serial. And Hunter Davis, as a Sunday Times journalist, clearly there's some deal was done with the Sunday Times that they serialised the book for a month ahead of publication. And here's the review that appears of the book, <laughs> of the book in the same paper that serialised it for a month. Irving Wardle says, buried amongst the acres of meaningless detail... Recording the number of steps down to the Cavern Club and the history of the, of the pen Paul McCartney borrowed to sign his first contract, there is some interesting material on the politics of the pop music world and the human price of being imprisoned inside an uncontrollable success machine. The Lennon interviews, as one would expect, are full of character. There is quite a book to be written about that, but this one is strictly for the relic collectors. Wow. You know, it's what I think is what I felt looking at a lot of these reviews is they are not so much reviews of the qualities of Hunter Davis's book, which is much better than it gets credit for, but about how people felt, how angry people felt that a book of this sort was being published in a hardback for 30 shillings in 1968. And they had to write about it. it. You know, you can't underestimate. I think we talked about this on the backlisted podcast. You know, the Beatles are a thing that blokes have talked into normality, as we are doing now, and we know every detail, right? We've ruined it. We've spoiled it. If you go back and you look at the eyewitness accounts from the 1960s and you look at the, how much people hated the Beatles, how much they represented anarchy and sexual freedom and chaos, that's everything that comes through and you look at all the reviews of even the bo- a book by Hunter Davis which is habitually written about as being this bold safe version it isn't people hate it and they don't hate it because of the way in which it's written they hate it because it's a serious book about the Beatles right and it's and it's widely
0: reviewed and widely dismissed
1: totally fascinating
0: I I agree I agree can we talk a bit about kind of moving into the the legacy of this, you know, we, we've both read our fair share of, of, of Beatle books, um, I, I know. Um, do you think this gets, I mean, it's always had, as far as I, from when my dad gave it to me that, that day in the mid-90s up until now, it's always had a relatively, I would say, steady reputation as a book that should be on. When you see those articles that appear of the Beetle books that you should own, Ninety percent of them will have this, maybe with a caveat about it being, you know, uh, being salatized, etc. Do you think it gets a little bit of a free pass because it's the official in inverted commas book?
1: No. No, I think, it, I think it is included in those lists because it's good enough to be there. That's why I thought revisiting it. And I okay. speak as a Beatles fan and as a writer and as a, a you know, just as a, someone who, who talks about old books and, and is interested in old books. I think the thing that's most in, I think there are three reasons why it deserves to be there. The first is, as we've talked about, he does the groundwork he does He does a lot of the he establishes a lot of the beats in the Beatles story that everybody else subsequently follows, and he did it in a year so there 's that. The second thing is the reportage is incredibly important. the scenes you were talking about Joe, about you know we don 't have those eyewitness accounts apart really from him, and so that stuff is is spine tingling but i think there's a. I think there's a a third reason, and it goes back to that Sunday Times about. The Beatles, Summation, the Beatles fascinate him as a phenomenon and as people. I actually think there's more generosity towards the Beatles and more willingness to see them in the round in this book than there, than there is in many other books, be they negative versions of this material or more positive, blindly devoted versions of this material. What struck me, really, this is one of the best depictions of the personalities of the Beatles that to this day exists if, I, I think you would be hard to quibble with the portrayal of who the Beatles were in 1967 and what it was like to be one of them in 1967 and actually it's surprising how much is there you know, for all the stuff we talked about, stuff that's been left out. Actually most of it's there. Most of it's there. Most of the story is there. Their personalities are there. His interpretations are not you know, we could quibble with anybody's interpretations, but actually they're they're pretty they're pretty rock solid, I think. Mm. What do you, what do you think? Do you think it deserves to be
0: part of the canon still? Absolutely. I couldn't I, I think it's Do you know I sort of started to express a little bit of doubt about it um, before I reread it again, because I hadn't read it for about 10 years, maybe, maybe a bit less than, maybe about eight years. And I thought, obviously, when I knew we'd be doing this, I I, I picked it up again. And yeah, it it actually seemed, maybe from what I was saying before, about having read things like Mark Lewison's book and many, many other books about the Beatles, there's such a conciseness to this. There's such a it's a little bit like some of the Beatles music in the sense that it's, you know, it's kind of a two and a half yeah. minute song. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it tells you what you need Spot to know. On. Spot it, on. And I think, and you know, I, you know, I love those giant beetle books, not just Mark. There are many other beetle books that go into huge amounts of detail, which, which I like. And there's a place for, but none of them are ever going to, none of them really have the zip of this. Maybe apart from the Michael Brown, love me Do book. A terrific um, book. Which is a wonderful book uh, and it uh, captures them again. A bit like this book captures them at a moment. No other book can capture them at that time because they're all written after it. Um, I thought it zips along with such energy uh, and such impact throughout most of it that even though there are times when I'm thinking with my 2021 head, oh, I'd love to know a bit more about that. I wonder what George's mum thought about yeah, this. yeah, yeah that's the only thing that i kind of got from it as as, as i said earlier but i think it's yeah i mean I, I, think not... the th-
1: I think the thing is hunter davis is a good is a very good writer hmm. also remember who he was when he wrote this he's pretty young he's a sunday times journalist what's coming through is a journalist's eye for the detail in the moment and actually it's that element which is the thing which is which makes it still worth reading it would be unfair to, and he would, I think he would agree, it would be unfair to uh, make claims for it as definitive. It's not meant to be definitive. It's meant to be, a, it's meant to capture them at the moment he was writing about them. And he can't be faulted on that. I mean, he can be faulted, maybe arguably, for part of the deal that they did with Nems and, and uh, Heinemann was, you know. Beatles had some say about what they wanted cut, which was that the price they paid—he paid for, paid for access—and he says actually it was pretty good. Mimi, made, Mimi wanted changes, which were quite hard. Lennon wanted some changes just for a quiet life. The worst, the nightmare, was that Epstein had died, mm. and he had then had to deal with his grieving family about what elements of Epstein's private life they were willing to have put into the public domain. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the book is how much of the the focus is on Epstein. I think that very much speaks to 1968, the sense that this thing couldn't have happened because of the Beatles. There had to be some Sven Gali involved, be it George Martin or Dick James or, or Mm. Brian Epstein that feels, that feels dated, I think, but it's still good stuff you know it's still interesting i wonder could i before we finish could i just talk a little bit about um you know i'm very grateful to to you for getting me to reread this and it really made me think a lot about i mean if we talk about beatles books that have been successful Mm, please i mean there are hundreds of beatles books right but there are probably half a dozen famous ones and they're famous because they're either extremely well thought of critically or because they sold no, I think it's true to say a lot of Beatles books sell up to a certain level and not above because there's a fan base that will buy anything. And then but what you always want to do, publishing a book, is you want to you almost it's true to say you want it to appeal to people who are quite interested in the subject <laughs> okay. because they're because they're a much bigger potential audience, just like in the music industry. You want to get to the people who only buy one album a year from a supermarket and it's an Adele album. Yeah. You you want to get those people. You don't want to buy you don't want to get you don't care about mojo readers because the the, the upside of that, that lot of me is like two thousand copies. You know, you want you want hundreds of thousands of copies and that by definition they tend to be people who don't necessarily buy a lot of records and mm-hmm. what they buy is from the supermarket. So, you know, if we look at best selling Beatles books. What would, we, what would we list? So we'd start with, you know, this book did well. Hunter Davis's book did well. Did well okay. in the States. The States paid a lot of money for it. They paid the equivalent, the McGraw-Hill in the States paid the equivalent of about a million bucks for this book, and they sold a lot of books. So, you know, this book works in 68, 69. We talked about The Beatles, and illustrated record, a bestseller in the 70s. Now, what would we add to this? Philip Norman's book, Shout, yes when's that published 80 81
0: 81 although it started 78 79 i think it's quite a long project so it started before john dies which i think is a key point there because i think part of the success of shout is timing because it comes out march 81 okay three months after john is killed absolutely so, and obviously, as, as we know, and as most people listening to this podcast will know, shout-pates shout a very unkind picture of Paul. And Sh- shite, as shite, as he, as he refers, yeah, to refers to it as that, and, and Norma Phillips as the author um, is what um, you call but, him.
1: But also, I would say, you know, Hunter says in one of the updates to his book, you know, he helped Philip Norman with shout you know, because Philip Norman was not. Philip Norman wasn't a hack either. Philip Norman is a, Is a. I've met Philip. I've never met Hunter Doe, so I have met Philip Norman. He's very, very interesting guy. And and, you know, has written a very reputable book about John Lennon. Certainly, when we look at some of the other books about John Lennon, which we've had to suffer in the last forty years, you know, Philip Norman deserves full credit. What I'm. What I'm interested in. what I'm trying. What I'm trying to push towards here is, not really the qualities of the book, but what does its success tell us about what people wanted from a Beatles book in the era in which it was published? In 68, when Hunter's book is published, what people want is what he gives them. A warts and all, but not too many warts version. By 1981, people want dirt because they feel that, that, that that hasn't been shared with them. But on the other hand, the Beatles are taken much more seriously by 1981 as a significant historical, social and cultural uh, artefact. So Philip Norman's book fills that. I mean, I read Shout shortly after I read this in like 1982 or 83. I really enjoyed it. But it almost Shout exists in reaction to Hunter Davis's book. It's It's the second significant. I mean I know there are other books that matter, but it's the second significant best selling Beatles book after Hunter's book. And then if we go forward again, you know, Revolution in the Head. I had some dealings with Ian McDonald when Revolution in the Head was published and after Revolution in the Head was published. Wow. And uh, you know, I think Revolution in the Head is an absolute masterpiece as a Beatles book and as a, critical, as a piece of critical writing, both those things. And I wrote a book about the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society in the early noughties, which owes a massive debt, as many writers do, to the ground that Ian MacDonald broke in Revolution in the Head. You know, my book is a song-by-song song analysis of a particular period of the Kinks, trying to put it in context. You know, it's a total rip-off of Revolution in the Head. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm one of many people who did that. So Ian invented a whole genre. But what does the success of that book tell us about what people wanted from a Beatles book in the, 90, in the mid-90s? You know, what they wanted, they didn't want to shout anymore. They wanted the anthology. They wanted something that took the Beatles seriously as art, right? Right. And and let me tell you, Revolution in the Head was extremely well-reviewed when it was published and sold a lot of books when it was published. There's no sense anymore of the Beatles being a fad. It's read by people like me, No, you're probably too young for it. Sorry, Joe, but you did say that, you know. But me in my late 20s or early 30s, late 20s, people like Nick Hornby who are in their 30s. That's the Beatles book we wanted to read in that era. And then we go on to maybe Pete Doggett's book, You Never Give Me Your Money. That's an important book. I mean, I guess Mark Lewis's books, not actually, funnily enough, Tune In, but the Recording Sessions book and the Day by Day book. I must have read the Recording Sessions book. I must have read that cover to cover 20 times. Yeah. I, and indeed, Ian McDonald's book would not have been possible without that book, because so much of the, the detail that Ian interprets in Revolution in the Head is drawn from what Mark Lewiston did in the Sessions book and Day by Day. But what did we want? What did we want then? We wanted the information. We, mm. didn't, we didn't want Revolver talked about in one sentence. We needed it to be talked about track by track, blow by blow, you know, moment by moment, recording by recording. And we needed it put in chronological order. And, we, and then to come up to the present day, what's the big Beatles book of the moment? Of the last 10 years, probably.
0: It would have to be Craig Brown's 1234.
1: Craig Brown's 1234. Now, we were talking about this before we came on. I'm going to say to you, right, so I'll talk a bit about it as a Beatles fan, but also as a reader, writer. Mm. But before I do that, what, what did you make of that book?
0: Well, I thought it was... I was, aware, I was aware of Craig Brown, primarily through Mom Darling, his book about Princess Margaret. A book, a book I love. A wonderful yeah. book, a book which I bought for my mother for Christmas that year, <laughs> which I read myself first. Um, and I read it, and I thought parts of it were really refreshing. I thought the way that he talks about the the tours of the Leonard McCartney Holmes through the National Trust I thought was really uh, funny Mm -hmm. and really interesting obviously there are elements of the story that I knew because of the my background in in Beatle books and I I could tell that I don't know I don't put it yeah I I could tell that maybe he wasn't as he wasn't as passionate about Beatle music maybe um as some Beatle authors which I thought was maybe an issue at some points but I, I realized quite quickly that It was a very different Beatles book from what we've had for the last 10, 20 years. It comes at the Beatles from quite a different perspective. Some of the views, some of the depictions of Yoko, I found distasteful. uh, And I found a little bit dated, considering... Yeah, I I agree.
1: I agree with that. And and we talked a bit about this. The dated, I agree with you, they're dated. Mm. But at the same time, you could see where he was coming from because Craig Brown is sort of, it wasn't singling Yoko out for special treatment. That's his, If Craig Brown tends to call bullshit where he sees it. So, but I, but having said that, yes, I kind of agree. It it felt a bit, um, you could have written this in 1972, mate, and it wouldn't have been okay then. So um, did you enjoy it? I love the first half of it, and then I, and then maybe, I don't know. I, I'm going to say that I, I really love Ma- "Mom, Darling, that is a brilliant book. I didn't learn very much new about the Beatles from it. Uh, I didn't know about the Malcolm Muggeridge seeing them in Hamburg thing. That was incredible. I mean, th- that's the highlight of the yeah. book for me. I'd never read that before. Me too. But I still, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And bits of it really made me laugh. And I didn't think the structure really came together. That was my writerly con- complaint about it. What I think is interesting about it is it's been a huge bestseller. Yeah. So what, So going back to what we were talking about, so what do, we, what do we infer from that? And my take on Craig Brown's book is here in 2020, 2021. You know, he talks about having gone to the Finsbury Park Astoria or the Rainbow, as it subsequently was, to see the Beatles' pantomime and not being able to remember much about it. And I thought, oh, I know what this is. I suddenly get what this is. This is a, this is a Beatles book. You know, we've had Beatles books for young people, Hunter Davis. We have Beatles books for middle-aged people, Revolution in the Head. And now we've got Beatles books for old people. <laughs> and but but look at I'm not that sounds like I'm being mean I'm not I'm just stating the facts it's 2021 anyone who was a teenager in the 1960s is drawing their pension and the Beatles the phenomenon of the Beatles has been one of the most significant things of their shared experience in their lives and that is I think why Craig Brown's book is speaking to this particular moment because without labouring that point, it's a book that will appeal to people either who grew up with the Beatles as just a fact of life, you know, rather than as fans, or equally for younger people who think, yeah, these Beatles, the Beatles, they're like Shakespeare or Picasso. I know I'm supposed to know something about them, and they're always around... And here's this guy presenting their story in a chatty, bitty, anecdotal, funny way. Mm. But fundamentally, I think it's, it's a book written by someone who was a teenager in 1964 and who isn't a teenager in 2021. And I think that's, I think that's what the book is really about. And I think that's who the book is, is talking to. What do you I, think?
0: I agree. The only thing I would add is... Talking about timing with with books, obviously we have mentioned shout was timed yeah. kind of well because you know of John's uh, death, etc. Revolution in the Head was timed well from a combination of Britpop was around, obviously UK mainly, and I think it spoke to that moment. Things like Mojo and appear, and it's mm. that, it's that thing. Craig Brown's book comes out. I think I'm right in saying start of March 2020, middle of March 2020. At the end of on March 26th, we have our first in the UK, the first lockdown, which was the, you know, obviously as we can, it seems like longer ago, maybe now as we speak at the start of 2021. But yeah, the lockdown hit. And I think, I know I certainly did, and a lot of people that I knew, we looked to familiar, reassuring things in what was a very uncertain time. And I think True. I think True. the Beatles are... True you know, are the Beatles of the most, for all generations, but particularly, as you say, for the generation that were there, the most reassuring and the most hopeful thing. Because the Beatles in the main sung about hope and brightness and positivity.
1: Hope They sang about hope of deliverance, didn't they? That's what they sang about. <laughs> One of them did. One of them
0: did <laughs> somewhat <laughs> later on, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we need them now more than than ever, because certainly then and now to to a maybe a mildly lesser extent, because we're getting a handle, dare I say, on it to a certain extent. But we needed the Beatles and there this book appeared, just pure accident, you know. I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna say this is a brilliant example of the William Goldman Nobody Knows Anything rule from um... Aventures in the Screen Trade. He famously says in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. If 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 anyone knew anything about why a film was a hit, they, they would only be hits, right? It's only after the event that we go. Well, uh, and I'm not disagreeing with you, Joe. But okay, one, two, three, four was published by the same publisher in the same month, more or less, as The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel, the much anticipated third and final part of the Wolf Hall trilogy, winner of the Booker Prize, mass bestseller in the lockdown it turned out people seemed not to have an appetite for reading the mirror and the light but they did have an appetite for reading one two three four mm. and we can only say that with the benefit i can give you reasons why i think that might be in hindsight but if we'd had this conversation a year ago i had been saying that henry mantel is going to go like a train but i don't really know who's going to read this craig brown book so you know who knows who knows why these things happen? The fact of the matter is, the Craig Brown book has, you know, it won the Bailey Gifford Prize. I think I'm right in saying, and it has been another massive bestseller. And I feel means picky. I feel being. I feel like I'm being picky by by complaining about it. I think it's fascinating that the story of the Beatles. A story often told, a story which has been in the bestseller lists decade after decade, time after time, can here, in the third decade of the 21st century, still be told in a way that can find a whole new audience of hundreds of thousands of people. What an amazing thing. And I return to what we said about Hunter. It's down to Hunter. Hunter is the one who pretty much defines what that story is and either you can expand massively on it as Mark Lewison does or you can highlight certain bits for comedic or rhetorical effect like Craig Brown does or you can burrow down into the music like Ian McDonald did or you can emphasise some of the sleaze which Hunter Davis didn't want to talk about like Philip Norman did but when it comes down to it they're still all orbiting around The Beatles, The Authorised Biography by Hunter Davis, aren't they? And that's an incredible achievement
0: Hmm.
1: so whatever one whatever quibbles we might have with hunter davis's book it's still here it's still obviously the book one of the books you have to read if you're going to write about this subject or have an overview of it and that's an incredible thing you know that's an incredible thing for a young journalist to have done to have future-proofed it enough that we can still read it in 2021 and still get stuff from it
0: well i certainly got got some some stuff from it when i reread it andy um this has been just a wonderful hour and a bit maybe of of talking um always always over an hour been a great time so i just wanted to yeah thank you so much for for giving up your time to give a little bit of new life to this particular old book thanks andy
1: i'm i'm just so grateful to you joe for for giving me the opportunity to read it again actually it was lovely to be reunited with my 13 year old cotswold mini break self wanting to find out what the song with the red umbrella is if anybody knows let us know